of this morning's sermon text. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom, that the, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the reading of your word. Thank you for speaking, for revealing yourself. And now, as we <clears throat> take time to consider it, I pray that you would help us to not only be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. May, may your word be balm to our hurting souls this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the last couple weeks, we have been talking about how Christians can still have hope and should have hope in the midst of much sorrow and suffering. And, and what we've seen is, is quite unique. A couple weeks ago, we said <clears throat> Christians don't suffer alone. We said that, that our suffering does not repel God away from us, but instead we follow a Savior who welcomes the wounded, the weary, and the weak, and he calls us into his rest. And we rest in Jesus, who saved us from suffering by suffering for us. And then last week... We took a step back, and we said, Christians don't suffer senselessly. So we saw from Romans 5 how God is working out his purposes for us even through suffering, that, that we look for Jesus and we find him at work in us, in our sufferings even. And this week, as, as Barton just read for us from Romans 8, we're going to consider what I would say is the most unique aspect of the Christian approach to suffering. Suffering gives Christians a deeper longing for Jesus. We believe simultaneously that the world we experience is as bad as it seems, but the world awaiting us is far more glorious than we could ever hope. Now, quick little history lesson for you. Toward the end of World War II, another, another crisis, different, different kind, but another crisis, toward the end, there were two significant days, and, and they've, they've become known as D-Day and, and V-Day. So, so the war effectively ended on D-Day. This was the day where 
Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, France, and, and the Allies invaded Europe, the Americans invaded Europe, and Britain invaded Europe in an overwhelming way. It was this massive invasion, and it signaled that it was only a matter of time before Nazi Germany would be completely overwhelmed and defeated. But the war did not officially end until V-Day, or Victory Day. And that was the day that the Nazis finally, officially surrendered. And it took months of bitter fighting between D-Day and V-Day before the war would actually end. John Frame, in one of his books, he draws this connection to Christianity by pointing out these two days. He says that the cross and the empty tomb were like D-Day. As Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, he pronounced the future and certain end of sin, suffering, Satan, and death itself. But the return of Jesus is like V-Day. And that will be the day when every evil thing will be tossed into a lake of fire. And we will experience final restoration. And as we said last week, we live between the times. We live in a world where viruses and economic breakdowns happen. We, we live in the tension of the already and the not yet as Christians. And during this time, we can expect sorrow, we can expect conflict, and we can expect fighting. But what we know is, whatever we endure, we endure from a position of victory. Now, this is the backdrop of Romans 8, 18 through 25. Paul begins this section with a summary statement in verse 18. So, if you look with me, Romans 8, verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, Paul presents two time periods. He says there's the present time, which is full of suffering, and then there's a future time, which is full of glory. And, and then he says that the future glory is so much greater than the present sufferings, the two aren't even worth comparing. He, he doesn't just say that it's greater. He says they're not even worth comparing. It, it would be like comparing the weight of an elephant to the weight of a gnat. It would be like comparing the success of Kentucky men's basketball to the success of Mississippi State men's basketball. I mean, it's just, they, don't, they don't even compare at all. There's no comparison. And I, I feel no pressure from you because you're not sitting here to give me these head, you know, shaking your head or, or these glares. But if you look at verse 18, if you don't look at it carefully, you're going to miss the beauty of his argument. Paul is not saying that present sufferings are light and insignificant in and of themselves. He's not saying that if we would just have the right perspective, we'd realize the world really isn't that bad after all. We're just looking at it the wrong way. No, Paul is saying that the future glory held out for Christians in the future, that glory is so overwhelming, is so weighty, is so valuable, is so wonderful that it outweighs the total sum of sufferings ever experienced in the history of the world. He's saying that even if you add up all the suffering from the time of the first sin in the Garden of Eden until the end of time, their combined weight isn't even worth comparing to the weight of glory that's held out for us in the future. So this passage is more about the nature of the glory that will come and less about the nature of the suffering we experience now. We can still say that suffering is a deeply painful human reality. 
that it will continue to plague us in this present age. But for those that are in Christ, suffering has an end date. The day is coming. The day suffering ends and eternity of incomparable glory will begin. This is why this is important. When a global pandemic sets in and life in this present age goes south, Christians, maybe more than anybody else in the world, are able to have both an honest and hopeful perspective. And this balanced perspective will stabilize us in this crisis. And I don't know about you, but I need to be stabilized. Because for the past few weeks, I feel like my head has been spinning. Because Romans 8.18 is true, we can be simultaneously pessimistic and optimistic about the world. And, and this is not us just trying to find the bright side of a dark situation. We aren't just trying to make the most of a terrible crisis. The gospel teaches us and enables us to see suffering, experience suffering, and hate it. While providing us a vision of incomparable beauty and glory for the future. So we can trust and we can hope. We can lament and we can long. And, and this is what I believe is so stabilizing for us. Lamenting the world as it is and longing for the world as it will be are the two pillars that keep our faith standing firm against the onslaught of sin and suffering and death in this fallen world. Lamenting and longing give us strength to hope when we have every reason to despair. Lamenting and longing give us strength to go on when we have every reason to give up. So I want us to consider these, these two responses, these two pillars, lamenting and longing. First, I want to encourage you during this crisis to lament the world as it is. And there are a few reasons we should do this. First, we lament the world as it is because it comes natural to us. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in that way, but think back to the last week of February of this year, or the first week of March even, and compare that to the first week of April. Our lives have been turned upside down. Fear and anxiety fill the air. No, no one's out on the streets, even in Tupelo right now. I saw a video of Times Square. It was so eerie, just completely empty. No people anywhere. And I've even talked to, to a lot of you who, who are still going into work uh, and just asked you, you know, how, what is work like? You know, what's the atmosphere like? And it's, it's, it's crazy. Every single one of you at some point in your description used the same word tense. It, it's tense at work. Life just doesn't feel right. Do you feel that inner frustration? And we feel frustrated, not just because the NBA season was canceled or that, that college football may not happen this year or because we're opening the, the news every day and we're, we're getting depressed. We're, we have this inner frustration because 10 million people are out of work and hundreds of thousands are sick and hospitals are running low on supplies and we can't even drive over to a friend's house for a cup of coffee and our kids, they can't hang out with their buddies. It's, it's not right. It's not right. 
and is natural to us. Do you feel that? Do you feel that inner sadness and, and even anger over the way that the world is? It's natural. Humans, humans, as a part of creation, we are hardwired, unlike any other creatures, to desire a world better than the one that we're in. And no matter how much we advance, no matter how much we improve the world, all it takes is one single virus to remind us all that this world will always be full of decay, disease, and death. But if you're sad, and if you're, you're angry over the way that the world is, we encourage you, you are on to something. The world is not supposed to be this way. You were made for another world. And that's why your heart is aching right now. That's at the depth of all of your pain right now. Christians and even creation itself, Paul says in Romans 8 here, groan over the world as it is. The Greek word that, from which we get groan here in Romans 8 means a cry of agony as one awaits death. And, and then Paul gives the opposite image where a woman is groaning in the pains of childbirth. Christians aren't those who believe that if we just look hard enough, we can see good in suffering. The Christian view of suffering is that suffering is bad. Period. Just bad. And we hate it. We lament. We cry out to our God like the psalmist in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? We cry out, why, O Lord? And we do this because it's natural to us. God has hardwired us to desire a world better than the one that we're in. But we also lament the world as it is as Christians because that's what Jesus did. Think about it. When we lament, we are reflecting Jesus. Jesus, when he approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, was angry and he wept. Even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Jesus, when he looked out over the city of Jerusalem, he mourned their lostness. And this same Jesus that we follow, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that God the Father would take the cup of suffering, take the cup of wrath away from him if it was his will. In this same Jesus, we see him dying in agony on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we said last week, at Trace Crossing, we want nothing more than to be like Jesus. It is Christ-like to groan and to weep and to mourn and to lament suffering, sickness, and death. And I know it sounds strange, but the more you look like Jesus, the more you grow in Christ-likeness, the more sad, the more discontent you will become with this world as it is. It grieves you because it is so far from the world as God created it. The world wasn't always like this. The world was created in order, not chaos. Sin entered the world, and chaos followed. Sin entered the world, and death followed. And, you know, we always seem to be surprised by suffering, but we of all people shouldn't be. We know that because of sin in the world, this world has been on a downward spiral ever since, and we should not try to numb ourselves to how bad the world is. This spiritual practice of lament is exactly what our aching hearts need right now. Lamenting the world as it is reminds us of our utter dependence on God, 
It is, it is the practice of turning to God, not away from Him, in our frustration and in our groaning. And if we aren't honest with the devastating reality of the world as it is, we will never be able to handle suffering well. We will never be able to cope. We won't be able to cope or deal with suffering if we try to distract ourselves from its reality. This counsel, ah, oh, it's really not that bad, we're going to be okay, that, that doesn't help much. When every single day the situation only gets worse and we find ourselves in a situation where we're actually not okay. Paul, Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? Because the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But right now, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait. Now, if all we did was groan, if all we did was lament, we would be the most miserable people in the world. The council, the world is terrible, it's an awful place, and there's no hope for it. That's no better than burying your head in the sand and ignoring the reality of suffering. But not only do we have a natural inclination to, to lament the world as it is. Not only do we have a natural inclination to hate suffering, and, and not only did Jesus lament the world as it is, but we also have a natural inclination to long for something more, for something better, for a more glorious world. And Jesus himself had this same hope. We recognize that the world's not as it should be, but we also hope for a better day. But before we just start throwing the word hope around, I want, I want to stop and think about it for a second. Hope scares us. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. But hope, in the words of Red from Shawshank, is a dangerous thing. Red says in that, in that great movie, hope can drive a man insane. We're afraid of hope because we're afraid of hoping in the wrong thing. And if our hopes are empty, then T.S. Eliot was right when he wrote in the 1940s, the only advice is to wait without hope because we'd be hoping for the wrong thing. For the Christian, though, we can have both. We can have both honesty and hope. We can lament and we can long. Our hope and our longings will be fulfilled because of their source. Their source is the resurrection of Jesus. The Jesus who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and died on a cross on Good Friday rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. And the resurrection of Jesus was the inaugural act of the restoration of all things. Both sinners and the world we inhabit has a glorious future in Christ. So we long for the world as it will be. Let's think about that for just a second, this longing that we have. We don't just lament, we long. We long for a future world of glory. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
creation longs for the final day of redemption. Christians, God's people, believers, we long for this final day of redemption where the glory will be revealed. Now, the future glory that, that, that Paul sees, it's a glory of a restored humanity and a restored creation. I hope you see those two points here in this passage, a restored humanity and a restored creation. So first with humanity. Humanity will be fully restored as our salvation comes to completion. We will shine with the glory of God with no sin, suffering, or death present to cast a shadow. Paul says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. We are hoping, we are longing for the day when our salvation will be complete, when we will be glorified. And as part of that, humanity is fully restored as our bodies are made new. So our bodies now can, can become sick, they, they can decay, they do decay, and, and, and they, they die, they perish. Yet, this future hope, this future glory that Paul sees involves humanity with restored and glorified bodies. But it's not just humanity that's restored. He says that creation also will be made new. He personifies creation as longing for the day of final redemption because on that day, the creation will be restored and glorified. Now, this is why this is important. According to evolutionary theory, the world is running out of steam. And I actually saw a video. It was crazy. It just projected you know, the end of the universe. And it was trillions upon trillions upon trillions of years in the future. But trillions of years in the future, uh, evolution theorists would say that the universe will eventually become an empty void. There will be nothing. But, but I love how N.T. Wright captures this. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ announces that what God did for Jesus at Easter, he will do not only for those who are in Christ, but also for the entire cosmos. He will be, or it will be an act of new creation parallel to and derived from the act of new creation when God raised Jesus from the dead. The world that Paul envisions, the world that creation itself longs for and that believers long for is not heaven as we typically think of it. I hope you see this. Do you see how physical our future glory is? So, do a little exercise. When you hear the words future glory, especially as opposed to present sufferings, right now we suffer, but one day there is glory. What images come to mind? What do you, what do you think of? What, what will you be like? What, what will you look like? What will your surroundings look like? I, I think for a lot of us, we think of heaven and we think of this place with white clouds and white robes and angels and we think of harps and we think of choruses of hallelujah and maybe you even see yourself as a spirit floating around i hear others that say that you become an angel when when you die now if your vision of of the future glory looks something like that then then you're thinking most likely of what theologians call the intermediate state and this is what Paul refers to elsewhere when he says that after death, believers are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. 
And, and this intermediate state is the time between our death and the return of Jesus, and, and it will be a, a glorious time, and we will be in the presence of God, but that's not the glory that Paul has in mind here. That's not what we're ultimately hoping for. That's not the world that we long to be in. Paul envisions this world that is even more glorious than heaven as it is now. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we long for a day when creation itself will be redeemed and restored in splendor and in beauty. And on that day, we will experience in fullness what it means to walk the earth as God's children in perfection. So not only will on that day will there be no sin and be no suffering and be no death, but we will inhabit a world of unspeakable beauty and glory. We, we will have physical bodies that are not subject to decay or prone to viruses or, or prone to sin even. And just as Jesus was brought from death to life in a physical body, on that day we too will be brought from death to life in a physical body. This is what he means by we hope, we long for the redemption of our bodies. We long for life after life after death. The glory that is to be revealed to us makes our present suffering seem minuscule in comparison because it is the glory of a new creation, a new earth. Eternity will be spent in a place much like but far greater than the place we have now the place we inhabit now. That's why Paul says creation even longs for this day. Because the earth will not be cursed. It will not be subjected. It will not be in bondage. It will not be futile. All of creation will share in our glorified renewal. The earth will be perfect. It will not cause us pain. It will not be in chaos. There will be calm. There will be stillness. There will be blessings. There will be peace. So the pain that you're feeling right now, or the pain that you will feel as a result of COVID-19, or, or any other source, that should produce a deep longing for Jesus in your heart. A deep longing for his return. It should cause you to pray the Bible's final prayer, Come, Lord Jesus. Paul wants us to use our imaginations when we suffer. Do you see that? What he says in verse 18? He doesn't, he, I love how he phrases it. For I consider, there, there are other translations that say, for I reckon. And, you know, that's not just an Eastern Kentucky way of, of putting it. You know, I reckon. For I consider, I, I, I calculate, I imagine, I think about my present sufferings in light of, of the future glory that is to come. We consider how glorious the new earth will be. We consider how glorious the fullness of our salvation and restoration will be. Do that this week. Take time to consider how glorious that day will be when you inhabit this, this beautiful, wonderful earth that is, that is nothing but new and full of life, where, where you will no longer be tempted to sin, where, where you will be, no longer be prone to to contract a virus and where you will no longer die. Consider it. And, and this is far superior to distracting ourselves with happy thoughts. That's not what I have in mind. This exercise of glory consideration is remembering that our small, short lives are connected to a greater cosmic 
story. When we consider how glorious, how bright, how hopeful our future is in Christ, when we know that we are part of a grand story that God is telling, we can expect and we can even accept suffering. And it's only when you accept suffering that you can live an abundant life in the darkness. It's when you accept suffering that you start longing for a better world. And when you do that, you can sacrificially comfort and serve fellow sufferers. We're currently in a world that is subjected to futility, bondage, and corruption. Creation groans over it. We groan over it. We currently have bodies that are fading, susceptible to illness and death, and that's where we are in the story. You have to see yourself in light of this grand story. That's where we are. There are tears on these pages. We weep and we mourn and we grieve and we lament the world as it is, but this is not the end of the story. This is not as good as it gets. Glory will one day burst onto the scene. Soon, Christ will return. And when he returns, he will set right every wrong. He will restore all things. The, the Bible says that he is coming and that he is already making all things new. Your worship of God this morning, the simple fact that you are passing down the gospel story to your children, your faith in him in the midst of suffering, your hope in him in the midst of sorrow, that is a foretaste of the new creation that we will experience together. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, after sharing how Christians and creation both bemoan present sufferings and long for future glory, Paul tells us to do something that we don't like to do. I wish his counsel was different, but it can't be. He tells us to wait. He says, wait. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And we do hope for what we do not see. We do not see the new creation with our eyes right now. So we wait with patience. He says to wait eagerly. He says to wait patiently. And we do this with great expectation because our hope is in a future more glorious than we could ever imagine on our own. Our hope, then, is not in the government figuring all this out, although we're praying that the Lord would give them wisdom. Our hope is not in scientists coming up with a vaccine next week, though we're praying for a vaccine. Our hope is not in our own efforts to make the world a better place, although we will continue to use our God-given authority to care for and work for the good of creation and our fellow man. Our hope is in Jesus, God the Son, who took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, suffered and died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and our hope is in him, the one who will one day return to bring an end to all that is wrong with the world 
and to create a new world of peace and blessed joy. Friends, the story is not over. So, so don't panic. Don't run. Don't leave. Stay the course. And wait with eager longing. Wait with great expectation. God has kept all of his promises. He won't break this one. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus reigns over you and comforts you right now. This same Jesus will come back for you. The redemption of our bodies, the restoration of creation, the consummation of our salvation. It is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus itself. These days are dark and they're painful and they're likely only beginning. So I want to encourage you, take time, consider the glory that awaits you. Step all the way back and look out into the future to see what God has for you in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes something that's almost identical to what he says here in Romans 8. He writes, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. But just one verse before that, here's his counsel. Here's his declaration. So we do not lose heart. Christ is coming back. For those of us who have believed in him, suffering will be our experience in this life, but a glorious future awaits. Weeping may tarry for the night, the psalmist says, but joy comes with the morning. So don't lose heart. Let me pray.